you shouldn't shave but cultivate your down and let it grow so when you do return twill be soft and white as snow your lovely jane will be surprised to all begin to cook the greenhorn to his mother will say how savage i must look Hello and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, we have come to the the end of one part of this study of Francis Parkman Jr.'s historical writings. Uh, we've come to the end of the first of three volumes the Library of America published. Uh, the first volume looked at had the Oregon Trail and the Conspiracy of Pontiac in it. Um, the Conspiracy of Pontiac, we're going to finish it up today. It's probably going to be a little bit of a shorter episode. Um, I'm not sure there's too much more to get into it, um, but it, it kind of works almost as an, even though it was written before France and England and North America, which is the U.S.'s version of, of Gibbon, essentially, instead of looking at the fall of Rome, it looks at the fall of France in the Americas, but it's on par with, with Gibbon in, in brilliance and in um, bulk and in uh, ambition. Uh, this, you know, the conspiracy of Pontiac serves almost as an epilogue to that or, or a sequel saying, well, what happened after France fell? After France fell, of course, the Indians in the Great Lakes region lost their one ally or, or one ally they could at least somewhat count on to not violate their, their sovereignty and take their land. And the and this led to the revolt, right? But what did the revolt lead to? Well, what the revolt led to was, yeah, the proclamation line of 1763, which forbade migration, but that just pushed the colonists for quicker to revolution. It also led to the military penetration of the frontier. British troops coming to places they'd never been before, Indian lands that they never been to before. So Pontiac's revolt in its failure, led to what it was trying to avoid, which was the, the penetration of empire into the lands between the Appalachian Mountains and the, and the, and the Mississippi River. Where before you had a few forts, which did trading um, with the Indians, a small military presence. Where you once had that, now you have armies in the West. Right. And the cost of those armies, are, of course, are going to be one of the things that encourage the British to raise taxes on the colonists and try to tax them directly to pay for that. So obviously, that's a key, key part of the story of the American Revolution. Um, but anyways, we're, we're coming to the end of this book, the last hundred pages or so. And this the last few chapters. It's only six chapters left in the book. The last six only really deal with how I mean, the, the rebellion is basically over with the failure of the siege of Detroit. Um, the victory of the British at, at where was that place called again? Bushy Run, the victory of the, of the British at Bushy Run. These things, these events basically doom the rebellion. Um, and Pontiac knows that, but he continues to fight and, and, and do what he can. So a couple things happen here. One is you have two, two expeditions, one led by John Bradstreet and one led by, by Bouquet, 
And both of these generals in different regions of the frontier begin to subdue the Indians, largely by signing various peace treaties and eventually achieving some degree of success. They're working out treaties with different groups. Um, and then we got Pontiac increasing desperation, shifting his focus to the Illinois. So he's going way to the front, way to the west, um, to the Illinois, to try to get help there. And he's able to rally the, people, the Illinois tribes briefly uh, but they eventually get also um, subdued through the work of George Krogan, a front, a, really a straight-up frontiersman, not even a general, who makes various peace treaties with uh, them and subdues the frontier Indians. And, you know, that's sort of the end of, of, of Pontiac's rebellion. Pontiac would live on for, for, for four more years or so. He'd eventually be murdered, assassinated, you know, personal grievance. Um, it seems, uh, but to come say he dies in the rebellion itself that he was a part of, but, uh, but Pontiac lives on for a while in his failure, eventually gets, gets assassinated out of apparently some, some private dispute he had. But anyways, let's, let's finish up this book because I'm really excited to begin jumping into France and England and North America. Um, so the first chapter we got to look at today is chapter 26 of the whole book called Bradstreet's Army on the Lakes. So John Bradstreet, um, I think he's mentioned a few times before in the book, but this is the first clear introduction we get to him. Um, Parkman writes, the name of Bradstreet was already well known in America. At a dark and ill-omened period of the French War, he had crossed Lake Ontario with a force of 3,000 provincials and captured Fort Frontenac a formidable stronghold of the French, commanding the outlook of the lake. He had distinguished himself, moreover, by his gallant conduct in a skirmish with the Indians, French and Indians at the River Oswego. These exploits had gained him a reputation beyond his merits. He was a man of more activity than judgment, self-willed, vain, and eager for notoriety, notoriety, qualities which become sufficiently apparent before the end of the campaign. Um, so anyways, he, he raises an army, he gets uh, his troops, and they go into um, the Great Lakes region um, and work, he, you know, Niagara is the main focus of this, of this campaign. Now, it seems the main problem with Bradstreet's strategy, I mean, his force was such that, that he never really could be assaulted by the Indians. So it's just an issue of, of, of going place to place and working out peace treaties. It seems his ego did lead him to, to demand things that were rather what Parkman calls absurd. Um, quote, Bradstreet would only grant peace on the condition that they should become subjects of the king of England and acknowledge that he held over their country a sovereignty as ample and complete as any part of the, his dominion. Nothing could be more impolite and absurd than this demand. The smallest attempt at an invasion of their liberties had always been regarded by the Indians with extreme jealousy. And the prominent cause of the war had been the undue assumption of authority on part of England. This article of the treaty, could it put Port to be fully understood might have kindled afresh the quarrels which it sought to extinguish, but happily not a savage present was able to comprehend it. Subjection and sovereignty are ideas which never entered into the mind of an Indian, and therefore his language had no words to express them. Um, so <clears throat> bad policy, maybe, is what's suggested here, uh, built in arrogance, but he succeeds because what mattered was not the 
formal written treaty, what mattered was what was said, and what matters was the discourse and the dialogue. And I think where Bradstreet seemed to have some success was he didn't like have a general council with the Indians of the region. He went tribe to tribe, chief to chief to work it out. And then he could use petty grievances between the different communities to, to, uh, to his advantage. Um, so over the course of this campaign, he is able to, able to negotiate peace with numerous uh, Great Lakes um, tribes. Now there is one uh, long, I mean, they're kind of the foundation's not strong here for longstanding peace. And, you know, obviously there's going to be another rebellion soon. Uh, and Parkman seems to sort of ex tries to explain this. Uh, quote, the Indians at Detroit have been brought to reason and for the president at least would probably remain tranquil while the reestablishment of the post in the upper lakes must necessarily have great effect upon the natives of that region. At Sandusky, on the other hand, the work had been half done. The tribes of that place felt no respect for the English, while those to the south and westward had been left in a state of turbulence, which promised the abundant harvest of future mischief. In one particular, at least, Bradstreet had occasion serious detriment to the English interest. The Iroquois allies, whom had joined his army, were disgusted by his treachery of them, while they were roused to contempt by the imbecility of his conduct towards the enemy. And thus the efforts of Sir William Johnson to secure the attachment of these powerful tribes were in no small degree counteracted and neutralized. While Bradstreet's troops were advancing upon the lakes or lying idle in their camp at Sandusky, another expedition was in progress in the southwest with abler conduct and a more auspicious result. And that is the work of, of Bouquet in the Ohio Valley against the Indians. And, and it's much the same kind of story of, an, of, a, of a sizable force being brought in, you know, not a few hundred or, you know, but like a thousand, like a, a major force brought in um, to work against the Indians. The difference here is that this is the first military intervention by the British or the French, for that matter, into this region. Uh, this is new. Armies, they were used to armies in the Great Lakes region. The French were there. You had the, the French and Indian War. You had the different conflicts. You had forts. They were used to it. The Ohio Valley, no. I mean, the 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 English or the French had never really been there in, in any outside of fur traders or frontiers people. So this is kind of the impact of the rebellion in, in, a, in a negative way for the Indians was it, it led to a permanent military presence in this frontier. Um, but Bouquet is able to work through uh, peace treaties with the Senecas, the Shawnees, and the Delawares. And it's a, it's a more complete um, sub, subjugation of these, of these communities, unlike what happens in Bradstreet's campaign. Um, but now we get a really interesting kind of side conversation in this chapter, chapter 27, uh, about captives. Something that Parkman seems to be very interested in. So there were all these prisoners from the French and Indian War, some of them who may have been living with the Indians for, for seven, eight years at this point. Some people may have been captured previously and had been living there for a very long time. But as a result of these peace treaties being worked out, a lot of these prisoners, captives, have, been, have were returned. And 
you know, Parkman says right away, we shouldn't even call them prisoners. Quote, the word prisoner as applied to captives taken by the Indians is a misnomer and conveys a wholly false impression of their situation and treatment. When the vengeance of the conquerors is sated, when they have shot, stabbed, burned, or beaten to death enough to satisfy the shades of their departed relatives, they usually treat those who survive their wrath with moderation and humanity, often adopting them to supply the place of lost brothers, husbands, or children whose names are given to the successors that substituted in their place. So this um, it is kind of the mourning war concept, right? That some of these wars was not so much just for beavers or for vengeance or something, but really for captives, because captives can replace people who died, whether, whether they were killed in war or smallpox, by smallpox or disease. And the way I understand how it worked, and I'm not a specialist in this, is literally you'd be captured and be told you're now like Uncle Joe, you know, or you know my husband, or you're replacing our son, and you're, we're going to call you that. And you're literally a replacement for someone who, who falls. And there's totally your social role. I think it's fascinating if, if it happened as often as it, it seems to have happened. But in that case, these captives were not prisoners. They, they became, you know, Uncle Joe, who might be a prominent member of the community, who might have a wife, might have, you know, children, might have some status in that community. And some of them sort of liked it and enjoyed being there and found a new life and you know, obviously, if we think back to like my very first book in this podcast, uh, Type by Herman Melville, where, you know, there's something attractive. What we saw in that book, there's something attractive to the 19th century American or European to kind of the idleness of what they perceive as idleness in, in Pacific Island culture, right? Um, and yeah, I think there was something attractive about Indian life too. It's, it's freedom, it's maybe a different nature of work regimes, right? Of course, for men, it meant you didn't have to farm anymore because Indian women did the farming in this part of the world. Um, but now Parkman sees something deeper here, like kind of a like drive for the wild, a passion for the wild that gets kindled in the captives. Quote, there's a chord in the breast of most men prompt to answer loudly or faintly as the case may be, to such rude appeals. But there is influence of another sort, stronger with the minds of the finest texture, yet sometimes holding a controlling power over those who acknowledge nor suspect its workings. There are few so imbruted by vice, so perverted by art and luxury, as to dwell in the closest presence of nature, deaf to her voice of melody and power, untouched by the ennobling influences which mold and penetrate the heart that has not hardened itself against them. Into the spirit of one's such as such and one the mountain wind breathes his own freshness his thoughts flow with the placid stream of the broad deep river on and on he's got a whole paragraph he goes on like this uh quite poetically about the call of the wild uh that's in the hearts of people and and once it's been awakened by being a captive and being incorporated into an indian village you don't want to go back so they resent this and it's it's a fascinating conceit here that this civilization, this Native American civilization, was not just attractive to the Indians, it was attractive to, to all people. And, and it was something people missed. And they, to, such a, to such a degree that as much as they may have feared the Indians because of the stories of the scalping and the tomahawk, once they got there, they sort of liked it. So... Really, really great stuff here. So I, I urge you to, to 
pick up this book, go to chapter 27, read the last few pages of chapter 27, because there's some important conversation there about the, the this, this, I don't even, I, you know, he calls it like the drive of the pull of the wild, the call of the wild almost, but it's just a different, freer way of life. It's not really wilderness. It's a civilization. It's a culture. It's a society um, developed over, over thousands of years, like the cultures in the old world. But it's got something that they're lacking, that the European culture is lacking. All right. Next up, chapter 28, the Illinois. So um, this is, so suddenly we're, we're talking about these campaigns and, and suddenly Parkman says, okay, let's set that aside and let's talk about the state of the Illinois tribes in 1764. Why do that? Well, um, well we're going to find out. Um, he talks about the, the discovery of the Illinois all the way back to La Salle. That's, that's what will be discussed in the third volume of of France and England and North America. Um, and he talks about the Creole people who live there, soldiers and fur traders dwelling at. So these are really frontiersmen who are, who are basically uh, living alongside Indians on an equal status um, in, a, in total frontier conditions. You know, vagabond Indians here. This is, this is great stuff. Swarms of vagabond Indians infested the settlement and the people of any other character, they would have proved an intolerable annoyance. But the easy-tempered Creoles made friends and comrades of them, ate, drank, smoked, and often married with them. They were a debauched and drunken rabble, the remnants of that branch of the Algonquin stock known among the French as the Illinois, a people once numerous and powerful, but now miserably enfeebled and corrupted by foreign wars, domestic dissensions, and their own licentious manners. They comprised the broken fragments of five tribes, the Kashkishkas, Keokias, Pororias, Mishtigamias, and Tamorans. Uh, so Creole settlements and, and vagabond Indians living together in the Illinois. And this is who Pontiac goes to for the final aid at, 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 the, at the collapse of his cause. So chapter 29 is called Pontiac Rallies the Western Tribes, 1763 to 1765. So um, we're just given the narrative here of Pontiac's relationships with these different, different tribes. Now, apparently it's a Pororia, one of these groups that murders Pontiac eventually. So I want to keep that in mind. Um, so he is able to to kind of rally them, although they're not really the best of allies. I mean, it's kind of a hopeless, um, desperate attempt here now, but he is able to get their aid. Um, but um, that's chapter 29. Chapter 30, The Ruin of the Indian Cause, we're getting right to the end of the book here, is about the final kind of effort to subdue these Indian communities. And this is led by a man named George Krogan, um, who was Sir William Johnson's deputy. But he's got kind of an interesting background. Now, Wikipedia gives us a, a bit about him. Um, so 1718 born, died 1782. He was an Irish-born fur trader in the Ohio County of North America who became a key early figure in the region. In 1746, he was appointed to the Iroquois Onondaga Council and remained so until he was banished from the frontier in 1777 during the American Revolutionary War. So he's, he's on the Onondaga Council of the Iroquois. He became an important fur trader by going to villages and, of Native Americans, learning their languages and customs, and working on the frontier, whose previously mostly French had been trading. 
during and after King George's War of the 1740s, helped negotiate new treaties and alliances for the British with the Native Americans. So eventually he becomes Deputy Indian Agent for the Ohio regions under Sir William Johnson. Um, and he's a rival of George Washington for influence in Ohio County. Um, but, you know, his key role in this story, so he goes way back to King George's War to the 1740s. Um, but his key role here is to subdue these kind of Illinois tribes in the Illinois County. So um, after, after Bradstreet and Bouquet's campaigns, he becomes the one person who can pacify the Indian counties. Um, uh, quote, his ill-considered and untrue characterization of Krogan has endured um, as illiterate, imprudent, ill-bred. Uh, so he may or may not be that way, but that's kind of the impression. And Parkman sort of has that vision of him, too, as kind of a, a total frontiersman. Um, but in any case, uh, in the chapter, The Ruin of the Indian Cause, um, we basically see the final allies of Pontiac falling away, you know, working out various treaties. Um, you know, especially in this chapter, we, we learn about Krogan's efforts, who just seems to be an interesting guy who I'd like to know a little bit more about. So, the final chapter of the Conspiracy of Pontiac is called The Death of Pontiac. It's chapter 31. And um, we're, we're given Johnson and Pontiac's parlay, William Johnson and Pontiac's parlay, where they finally work out the ending of the rebellion. Uh, we get some recounting of the speeches that the two give. And then, um, you know, Pontiac, after this, sort of falls into uh, the fog of, fog of history. Uh, until 1769, when he's assassinated by a Peoria warrior, uh, his body is just left there. He's tomahawked in, his, in, the, in the back of his head by, by an enemy. And that's, that's the end. Uh, the final pages, the final words of the book are, Neither mound nor tablet mark the burial place of Pontiac. For a mausoleum, a city has risen above the forest hero. And the race whom he hated with such burning rancor trampled with unceasing footsteps over his forgotten grave. So sad. So sad, um, but obviously that's the history of American empire for you. But Parkman knows the greatness of Pontiac, and we can too by reading this, this, this account. Um, there's a little bit more here. Uh, there's appendices, which are basically just primary sources that includes, um, you know, important primary sources, but no point to focus too much on those. So that's it. That's it. That's... Um, the Conspiracy of Pontiac, five different parts on it. Um, I really like book two a lot more. I think book two is just so much more visceral and brutal, focuses much more on the, the frontier, just violence, the Paxton boys, the, the, we, like the mixed cultures of the Illinois, the Creoles communities alongside these Indian villages. Um, you know, the, just the overall fighting across the frontier. I think it's more, more striking. The first part of the book is much more kind of the, the European perspective on it. And the second half gets a little bit closer maybe to an Indian perspective on the, on the rebellion. But anyways, that's going to be it for now. Um, next episode, I'm going to begin, which I think will be a 26-part series. So you're going to be stuck with this Parkman for a while. 
on France and England and North America. I may, if I get them done in time, I may upload three a week or so. So I'm not doing this until summer, but um, so it'd be like seven weeks instead of a lot, a lot more, seven or eight weeks. Anyways, we're gonna we're gonna start soon. We're gonna start uh, the first book of France and England and North America was published in 1865, which is actually a full 14 years after. Uh, the Conspiracy in Pontiac. It's called Pioneers of France in the New World. And this is in two parts. This first volume has two parts. The first part deals with kind of a very interesting hypothetical. And that is, what if the Huguenots, the French Protestants, had endured? What if they had made it? What would that have meant for the French Empire in the Americas? Would it have been more like the English? Um, but it fails. So he starts by talking about the failure of the Huguenot settlement in, in, in Florida. It takes up half of the book. Then he shifts in the second half of the book to talking about uh, early French explorers, especially Champlain. Um, so it goes back actually to, the, to the, the possibly the years even before Columbus, because there, there was kind of a myth that the French discovered America two years before Columbus or something. And Parkman mentions that, doesn't you know, acknowledge it. But we get the very first French adventurers, um, the Jesuits in Acadia, uh, the settlement, uh, the first kind of dis posi French position in Quebec, and then the overall um, voyages of, of Champlain. Um, who Parkman at one point says was, was kind of, forgotten by history, but I always remember Champlain. Maybe it's because I'm from Wisconsin. We had to learn about Champlain and these French explorers. Um, but anyways, that, I'm looking forward to talking about that, um, that book. So we're going to start with the Huguenots in Florida. Um, and I'll see you next time. But for now, if you have any final thoughts about Pontiac's Rebellion, Pontiac's War, let me know. Send me a comment. Um, put a review on iTunes for me, please. Um, I will see you next time then with the beginning of the French and Indian for bread and meat for coffee and for brains your 60 days are a hundred or more in your grub you've got to divide your steers and mules are alkaline so put it you cannot ride you have to stand to watch at night to keep 